Welcome to the Paradigm Shift on 4ZZZ 102.1, where we challenge the assumptions of our current society to resist oppression and investigate alternative ways of living for a world based on justice, solidarity, and sustainability. Welcome to the Paradigm Shift on 4ZZZ 102.1 FM. It's great to be with you again. My name is Andy and I will be with you for the next hour. Um, Coming to you this week from Yolngu country up in the Northern Territory. Today on the show I'm going to be talking about community media of another kind. Uh, There's a brand new journal of radical ideas that has come out. It is called Dissolution. The first issue has just been released. They had their launch party last weekend in Melbourne. And um, I thought, that sounds like a great thing. I'm into journals of radical ideas. And so I thought I'd interview a few people from uh, the publication. To be honest, uh, if you have a close look at the, the list of authors in Dissolution Journal. You might just see my name on it, but we're not going to talk about the article I wrote for it. Instead, I'm going to talk to Morgan Heenan, who is one of the editors and, I guess, brains behind Dissolution coming together. And then we're going to chat to a couple of the contributors, um, Srishti Chatterjee, talking about non-citizens and how non-citizens are shut out of democratic processes and how they can maybe uh, make their presence felt anyway. We're going to talk to Yin Parodies, um, who is a Wakaya indigenous man who wrote a very fun article about wilding as a decolonial practice. We're going to hear a poem from Dissolution Journal as well. So stick around for the next hour. It's going to be a good time, a celebration of all things uh, community media, non-profit uh, media, bringing radical ideas, and in case you need another reminder, support 4ZZZ, do it in the next 10 days. You can call right now, 32521555, and somebody will happily take your call and sign you up. Um, otherwise, maybe we'll get into the show with a chat to Dissolution Editor Morgan Heenan. My name is Morgan Heenan. I'm a writer, musician, editor, uh, activist, working on dissolution. Yeah, so today on the show we're talking about dissolution, a new uh, journal. Do you want to tell us what's it all about? Essentially, dissolution is a, a publisher of work that is dealing with the, the profound issues of this moment in a way that's radical and critical and is platforming voices that uh, present a real a real challenge to the the way that things are currently organized 
So the first issue has just come out. You just had the launch event on the weekend. Uh, can you tell us what's in it? This first issue features uh, nine essays by writers across this continent that is essentially responding to the prompt of the real, the real tension between what this continent is and what it could be, the lives that we currently lead and those which we might like to lead instead. Mm. So we will uh, hear from a couple of the authors that are in the journal uh, as we go through the show, but I guess, yeah, how did you source authors or how did they get in contact? What's the criteria? <laughs> well, you know, the, the, the thinkers that we're interested in is, in is those who are really thinking quite deeply and outside of normative assumptions that are so commonly platformed in media on this continent. Uh, but it's, you know, it's essentially people that are, are working around these ideas in, in quite deep and critical ways. So it's quite a lot of work to make a journal, edit it, and all um, get all the contributors, everything like that. I guess why did you think that it was important to start Dissolution and do all this work? The impetus for getting a project happening was really just an awareness of a, a real kind of paucity of critical work on this continent and platforms for which it can be shared and engaged with. I mean, you know, there are great, there are great platforms certainly, but for me, the, the imperative is that the more, the better. We, we simply need to be producing as much work as possible, I feel, and, and sharing those ideas as, as widely as possible. And the tone's interesting. I mean, even calling it a journal has these kind of academic connotations, and there are academics involved in it, uh, and some of the essays some of the, are kind of that way inclined, but there's quite a, a wide spectrum, I guess. What are, are you aiming for? Is it a kind of another academic journal, or is it something more popular or something in between? Look, uh, it's, it's definitely somewhere between popular and academic, though I, I don't love either of those terms necessarily, but... You know what we're interested in, in is work which is rigorous, certainly, but not uh, elitist or or distinct or disparate from people's everyday experiences. Um, and so, people that have worked on this project, some of whom are academics, some of whom are not. Uh, you know, it's kind of irrelevant either way. It's it's essentially people that are are thinking in whatever capacity they want to be doing that. And I guess. Uh other side you are it does have an online presence for the website but you know you're making a paper journal at a time when paper publication i guess is threatened with extinction um what's thinking um, what do you think of the different virtues of having a, a paper publication versus online publication right so everything we're doing is is going on the online platform as a essentially just towards accessibility because i think that ideas should be as accessible and free as possible but Many of them are also going on this print platform too, and I think that has different virtues, certainly, just as a, as a reading experience and a way in which you can compile, in this case, nine different essays into one kind of one piece, one object that you can hold in your hands, and that, I think, just has, has a different experience and allows people to get different things out of it. And there was a launch event on the weekend, gathering people together, I guess, as part of this, you know, it's not just a disembodied uh, written document, you wanted to bring people together for it. How did the launch event go? Yeah, the launch event was fantastic. We had something like 100 people come through to 
Black Spark Cultural Centre here in Melbourne, where we had uh, discussion by a number of contributors. We had a number of ways in which people were kind of sharing their own ideas and collaborating. And then a big part of it is essentially use the drive towards community. And that was a big thing that came out through the discussion is a need for community. And so certainly I think being able to gather in physical spaces and be able to discuss these ideas, to be able to meet people that we otherwise wouldn't, that's that's a big intention of the project is community building around these ideas. All right. Well, the, the first issue is published and congratulations. It must have been a, a lot of work. What are the plans for the future? The plans from here are to continue creating as much work as possible really so we'll be uh, continually publishing work on the website and incrementally uh, or occasionally putting out these print issues too which are more themed around particular ideas and are more of a, a large work in and of itself. All right well the important question if people want to read Dissolution how can they do that? People can go on to dissolution.1 that's dissolution.one and uh, read all the work that we're creating um, and people can jump onto our social medias etc uh, if they want to be ordering a print copy send us a message alright thanks very much Morgan thanks Andy on the paradigm shift that was Morgan Heenan there if you get the copy of Dissolution Journal you will find an article from Morgan in there but in that interview we were talking about his role as the editor of this new journal. I'm going to keep going through the articles in Dissolution and the next one we've got is from Srishti Chatterjee who has written an article about the non-rights of non-citizens. It's got some very interesting points and it did make me think about COVID. Srishti talks a bit about their own experience of COVID as a non-citizen in this country but I thought more broadly about I guess the way that migrants have been talked about, international students and backpackers and uh, working visa holders who are willing to work, uh, the horrible exploitative jobs that Australian citizens aren't necessarily uh, willing to work, and just the way that these people were talked about as kind of economic fodder and not really as people who are um, equal contributors and equal uh, recipients of the benefits of our society. Um, and so, a timely article, I guess, and I chatted to Srishti about it, so let's have a listen. My name is Srishti. I am a NARM resident, uh, immigrant to NARM, and I am writing an honours thesis at the School of Culture and Communications at the University of Melbourne. And I've kind of worked across a range of different kinds of organisations, uh, like peak bodies, government, um, unions, etc., in like political organizing around gender, race, socioeconomic equity and stuff. Yeah. And today on the Paradigm Shift, we're talking to you because you are a contributor to the new Dissolution Journal. Your article is called Snag in the Democracy Sausage. Very Australian pun there. And it's about the rights of non-citizens. Can you tell us a bit more? So I am, because I've worked, uh, as I said before, I've worked in a range of different organizations, um, but most recently in the parliament and I've just, uh, and during elections as well. So I've experienced this like kind of profound sense of dissonance, I guess, uh, between like the responsibilities that I have as an immigrant when I move here to like sign 
like, you know, documents and decrees and visa applications saying that I'm going to fulfill all my duties as an Australian resident. I'm going to be uh, nice and uphold Australian values. But at the end of the uh, spectrum, there are very little rights available to um, non-citizens. So we don't get any job seeker or job keeper, any sort of welfare support at all, which was specifically bad during COVID. But it's also just generally quite bad. Like we shouldn't wait for like a global health emergency to realize how immigrants don't have many rights. Obviously, we can't vote. So the nation state isn't really accountable to us. And that is quite precisely where that marginalization takes its most extreme representation. Um, also, when you move here um, on your visa, you have to sign that you will not protest. Like it's it, you have to basically say that um, you will not participate in any act of protest, freedom fighting, but also in the same bracket involves like slavery, in, in, indemnity and genocide. So I think that's kind of where I, my idea for the essay came up is that um, I was working on the election campaigns a lot and I was experiencing this really massive dissonance that I'm working so hard for a thing that is not accountable to me or doesn't actually care about me as much. And um, given my activism background as well, like the, you know, navigating protests spaces while being an immigrant, that is kind of where the article comes from. Yeah. Yeah. One of the illuminating things about your article is this questionnaire that you're given when you uh, come to Australia asking you if you have been involved in protests before um which is crazy because i mean protests should be a normal part of civil life it shows that you're engaged in the world and in trying to make it better it's also really funny because um a lot of people who move here like kind of tend to move here because it's safer in a sense to experience those things here but also like protesting is a civil right guaranteed to us by places we come from like in india uh, where I'm from, like I'm an Indian citizen, um, like obviously the Indian government is like kind of tethering on fascism and there's so much like vitriol against protesting and my parents actually one of the biggest reasons wanted me to leave because of that because I have a big history of activism at home and they were like it's not safe for us here you should go somewhere else and it's really funny because it's a civil right guaranteed to me by the Indian nation state as well so if I was like if I were to be engaged in it in my home country and moved here, I was not doing anything illegal. It's a right guaranteed to me everywhere else. And this is kind of the big fallacy of having a nation state as the guarantor of human rights, as opposed to like a point I make in the essay a lot is that human rights are not really guaranteed to us by the fact that we are human. It's guaranteed to us by the fact that we are citizens of a nation state, which is which is why like stateless people or refugees and asylum seekers experience a very profound sense of the lack of any rights because they don't have a guarantor for those rights. Yeah, and in your article you do mention that two German citizens who took part in blockade Australia protests at the start of this year and were arrested were deported just for that, which um, shows that this is a very real issue faced by people who are don't have the rights of a citizen. Yeah, that's why the pun in the essay title, right? Like, because the snag part is like also like a little, like we're always scrambling for little parts and bits and pieces of the rights that should be guaranteed to us just by, because of the fact that we're human. Um, and like, you know, the celebration of democracy here. Like even like last year, I think when the March for Justice happened, the uh, Women's March for Justice, it was Morrison said, right? Like, oh, if this was any other country, you would have been shot. Which is like, this is not something we should be grateful for. This is just something that should be. And if you're like, if democracy is such an important value for you, that's 
every every country that brags about its sense of democracy is profoundly bad at like navigating the right to dissent or protest. Um, in the essay, I also talk about Amy Coney Barrett, who's the U.S. Supreme Court Justice, who in her interview, like when she was being interviewed by the Senate Enquiry Committee, mentioned all the all four of the five rights um, that are guaranteed by the U.S. Bill of Rights, except protest. In India as well, protesting, you know, like people are going to jail a lot, like for like, you know, arbitrary reasons under like terrorism and stuff, but they were like basically just protesting. So it's become a quite popular trend in any country that brags about democracy, but specifically with India and the US, it's more profound because they're the biggest and the largest democracies. In Australia, you don't have um, a Bill of Rights, like Australia doesn't have guaranteed freedoms. So it's already hard to navigate that for citizens and it becomes an extra step harder for non-citizens as well. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's a trend that you see in uh, people who are in positions of power that once people have got to these positions of individual power or institutional power, they really believe that um, everybody should take the path that they took, you know, to get power. They don't believe in collective forms of power formed by um, grassroots organizing of everyday people. Yeah, it's also quite intentional because it's um, like, you know, finitely confining your theory of change to a very specific bureaucratic way. And like, sure, like for some people running for office is like a quite powerful way to make change. And I've run for union offices before and I've seen that electoral politics is a specific way to make change. But then it doesn't actually do anything and it comes at a price for the people who will sacrifice all of this stuff to run. Like, especially if they're like marginalized people, right? Like people of color, women, non-binary and transgender people. Um, And it's really hard because you, because these systems were not designed for us. It They were not designed to keep us in mind. They were not designed, they were specifically designed to keep us out of it. And what happens is, we when we do get into it and some of us do we get caught in this web of like extreme like either like we have to be absolutely perfect to never make a mistake and to subject ourselves to these violent circumstances that were like designed to keep us out of them as if we are taking something away from like white people and that is one big thing as well in making changes through the politics way of things like not grassroots organizing whereas grassroots organizing is much more likely to be friendlier and more welcoming to like different stages of learning and community-based skill sharing which is at least been my experience of it as a non-citizen like participating in like grassroots change making the conclusion of your article is that i guess when some methods of change or social power is shut off from you that actually the best way to find the ability to change your own life is in these communities of people ordinary people that are committed and working towards change yeah. Yeah, actually, I think when I felt the most profound sense of disappointment in the Australian nation state, uh, especially during COVID, because like I had zero support and, you know, like starving international student, I, I'm very fortunate I got to keep my job because I was a, I was a union office bearer, so I was democratically elected. So you couldn't actually like kick me out. And I'm really fortunate. It was not the case for most people I know, you know, losing shifts and stuff. Um, but like the most profound sense of like community I felt were like people I met or had met through like protesting. Uh, I did a lot of refugee rights stuff and the park prison was like right around the corner from where I lived. So I would spend a lot of time there and I would, I made a lot of friends as a result. And 
um, those are people who have genuinely been life-saving for me in terms of like you know bringing me food when I wasn't able to afford some and helping me go to the doctor and things like that like general human things that you know people deserve and it's just should be a guaranteed fact of personhood um, I quote Hannah Arendt in my essay um, from her writing uh, about the human rights and like the end of state and rights of man where she says that post-war like post the world wars in like the United Nations it has become increasingly common for our human rights to come to us by virtue of citizenship as opposed to by virtue of like the fact that we're people and I think I experienced that really well with in terms of community like I, I owe everything literally of, of the happiness I experience or even like the the fact that I feel like I belong here in some way to like community organizers in arm who have done this from way before I existed and will continue to do this long after I'm gone and it's nice to know that I'm a little bit in the middle like I'm here and I'm playing a really small part as a person and I like they it that is a quite like that is a sense of comfort I drew from community organizing yeah and it's a reminder that when we talk about a power that so often in media and political communications um, power is framed around these institutional methods of change which are shut off to so many people and not just because you're non-citizens there's lots of people who in various ways are shut out of uh, the political process but actually our power to impact our lives and the world around us there's unlimited different ways that we can do that and um, we see that when you you see through the a mirage, I guess, of democratic power, you see that actually the ways that we, if we want to make change our world for a better, we need to have a broader variety of ways. And you talked about the park prison where it's going and protesting, but also just the acts of human solidarity towards one another. Yeah, exactly. And it is a lot more empowering than, you know, postponing everything to the three-year election period and being like, oh, yeah, like, you can't have any problems in the middle. Like, for example, with Labour, right? Like, um, as soon as they won government... Um, anytime you criticize them, the most common critique that you're getting is very like, um, why are you saying this now? Liberals have been in power for 10 years. Um, you can't, like, you know, labor has just come to power. Are we supposed to wait for 10 more years for us to be able to have human rights? Like, what is the correct time frame then? And so the power of grassroots organizing is a lot more empowering because it is in the now. You can do something now. You can fix this. You can lead up to this big goal. You know, it is easier to pick up the pieces and keep going because the point of grassroots organizing is to keep going. And I think that has been the most important lesson to learn from, like, community movements is that the point of it is to keep going, to not, like, get defeated. Whereas, like, elections, it's very easy because there are two people, you one of them wins and the other loses. There's a more profound sense of defeat, I guess, in a, especially in a double party system. Okay, well, you've written this article for Dissolution, an independent journal, and I'm interviewing you on a community radio station. What do you think is the importance of these kind of independent grassroots media? Oh, um, I am actually very, very passionate about this because my background in activism when I grew up is very like um, learning a lot of this stuff from independent pamphlets and journals and little magazines that you would find at protests, like people giving it to you at protests. And I think that being able to access that as a kid who grew up in poverty in India was really important for me. I have a I have a double degree in sociology and media, right? And I did that from the University of Melbourne. And there is a certain sense of like class in doing that as a degree. And I experience a very profound sense of solidarity in remembering that my activism or my sense of like sense of self and community don't come from 
like paywall journal articles. They come from uh, communities like, you know, sharing how, how we think and how we feel about each other. And I think that is where a large part of my activism comes from and is informed by. And so I'm like extremely passionate about independent uh, publishing because it is a way to ontologically critique class, right? Like when we're saying all these things about how poor people should be able to have things and like non-citizens should be able to afford um, to like express themselves. That should not come to us at the cost of like sounding like sellouts or feeling like we are dependent on these hegemonic industries that are actively disenfranchising us. It is so much nicer and more beautiful and there's a more profound sense of solidarity, I guess, in experiencing this through community art like and media. Okay, thanks very much for chatting with Srishti. Thank you. I was very lovely to be here. wanting too much in the shadow of not enough. It clings to the things we live to work for. All our lives we work to die for, the big hand of the clock we tick by for, the debts and the bonds, and a dog we can't afford and don't have time for, but we need something that breathes to a door. The smoke tries to choke, pushes into pause, fixing already bent bodies to the shape of business and dollar signs and the big hand of the clock. Bodies crippled by war, we are soldiers of a capitalist hell, blind and thirsty for a story to tell, a memory to leave behind in the smoke, even if it means obediently choking each other, ourselves, to death. Smoke thickens and thins, forming silhouettes of goats, nearly gone, but not quite dissolving. It always comes, but never fully goes. It snakes through the cracks and hisses behind the walls. It blurs the lines of friendship and love, of money and war, of power and people, of a dog and a final sip of air. Every place we go, the smoke comes, and bit by bit, day by day, it chokes us.
on the paradigm shift on 4ZZZ. That poem you just heard is called The Smoke Comes. It is by Ruby Thorburn. And it, like all the other things I've been talking about on this show, is featured in the new edition of Dissolution. It is a, a journal of radical ideas and thoughts and reflections on the practice of trying to change the world. Um, before Ruby's poem, we were talking to Srishti Chatterjee, who did write an article about non-citizens. Hey, I interviewed one more contributor to the Dissolution Journal. His name is Yin Parodies. He's a Wakaya indigenous man and an academic. Um, and he wrote an article on wilding. And I'm going to read you a little extract here to get you a vibe of what this article is like. So here's just a random paragraph from it. To rewild is to attune to direct, delectable action participation experience to re-establish ourselves as enmeshed aspects of the web of existence so as to flourish, thrive and prosper via enlivened, enriched, empowered and entwined becomings which care for, love and contribute to the majestic joy of naked existence. It's not exactly the kind of thing that you often find um, written by academics in journals, but that's the value of community media, isn't it? That people are able to write in whatever way they feel best communicates the ideas that they hold. They're not bound by ideas of form or ideas of profitability or uh, sensitivities or anything like that. And so I love reading... um, People cutting loose with a bit of uh, poetic prose to try to capture the ideas uh, that are floating around in their brain and in the universe around them. So I thought I would chat to Yin Parodies to hear more about rewilding. Let's see what he has to say. My name is Yin Parodies. I'm a Wakaya man. Uh, I'm professor of race relations at Deakin University where I do a lot of work on racism, anti-racism, as well as indigenous knowledges and decolonization. And you've written an article for the new Dissolution Journal. It's about wilding. Can you tell us a bit more? So the article is kind of about wilding as decolonization. So there's a couple of big ideas in there. Uh, The first is that we are conditioned in our society, let's call it modernity, uh, to take things for granted, to be shut down, to be straight-jacketed, to be actually quite fearful of our bigger selves, our more expansive, abundant selves. And wilding is to connect with the vastness of who we are as humans. And that's to relate better and more deeply and truthfully with ourselves with each other and with the world around us and to do that means that we are then able to change the nature of our of our modern societies which are very destructive um, not very healthy for almost everybody and also clearly involved in global scale uh, destruction and catastrophes of various kinds, including global warming, the sixth mass extinction, and so forth. And wilding is a way to return, essentially, 
to the way humans have been for about 95% or more of our history as a species, which spans at least 200,000 years. Yeah, how does your standing as a indigenous Wakaya person influence your thoughts and writing on this? It's it's very much fundamental to what I'm trying to say in this article. Yeah, these are these are indigenous wisdoms, indigenous knowledges about how to live and the way that indigenous peoples we have lived for a very long time before modernity uh, entered the scene. Yeah, and in your article, you I love the style. You have these long lists of uh, adjectives and verbs to try to evoke a sense of this wildness that you're talking about. I mean, what does it look like for you? It doesn't look like much, but it feels like a lot. It feels like vitality, vividness, vastness, visceral, deep, evocative feelings about the world it's basically about how you feel it's getting in touch with the poignancy of existence the awe that is life um, it's about sacredness and divinity as well and connecting with uh, the holiness of the world uh, so it's it's a kind of antidote or juxtaposition to a lot of what we're invited to in modernity which is to kind of be diminished, to be numbed, to forget, and, and not to face up to the realities of how unhealthy our, our lives are uh, in terms of our rampant consumption, but also in terms of our very impoverished relations, relationships with nature, if you want to call it that, with each other, with ourselves. Uh, and to be wild is to, is to connect with uh, very particular forms of freedom uh, and to be invited to yeah, have those, those deep, strong, unique connections with our worlds that we are mostly just ignore the, the, the beauty of, of the world that we move in every day. You mentioned there the sacred. It's not a very fashionable concept um, when it comes to talking about politics or understanding the world. What does that mean to you? No, it's not very fashionable, no. It's uh, one of those things that is considered kind of unnecessary, I guess, in, in modernity. But in reality, humans thrive on ritual and ceremony, um, rites of passage, doing things together that involves grace and gratitude and respect, things that are done slowly, things that are done with feeling. So to connect with the sacred means really to connect with our heritage as humans and the way that we've lived most of our existence. Yeah, so it's a presence, it's a practice, it's communion. Uh, and uh, it's, incredibly, it's incredibly important for us and we, we miss out on that a lot by being too caught up in the secular, the rational, the logical, the literal, the causal and I don't think it's been very good for us over these last few thousand years as it's developed and, how, and as sacredness has been marginalised in our society. Your article is quite fun and 
kind of poetic in tone and in that way it's quite different from the other articles in dissolution but also i assume quite different to what you would normally write in your context being involved in academia why did you choose to write the article in the way that you did i didn't try really it just happened this is part of this is part of connecting with the world is uh you don't try that hard you just invite the wisdom that comes from the vast metabolic intelligences of the cosmos. So I feel like I opened up in a certain way and wisdoms flowed from elsewhere through me. Uh, it's unusual. It's not very academic writing. And uh, I haven't written in that way before. So it probably didn't come from me at all. True. You're channeling the spirit of wildness. Yep. That's it. I guess that's one of the interesting things in trying to exist in our society. Um, I guess you have commitments around jobs, around paying for somewhere to live, around maintaining kind of relationships that we have, and I guess dealing with impairments either placed on us by society or maybe you know disabilities that people have or things like that. It's hard to talk about channeling a a pure essence of wildness, but then also going back to just existing in our society. Yes, it is hard. It is hard. Wildness is very much uh, a state of being, uh, knowing and doing, that really is about engaging with all our senses and attending to things, uh, resonating with our environments, our context. It's kind of a context sensitivity in some ways to becoming more sensitive more vulnerable to the world and you can do it anywhere with anyone at any time no matter what you're doing but of course we're not very good at it so we need practice and it is easier to practice in places with a bit more space i guess a bit more stillness a little more silence but with with practice you can you can be wild your know, entire life I'm still working on it myself, but it's certainly uh, a very nourishing and rewarding uh, orientation to the world to cultivate. I would recommend it to anyone. And what about politically? I mean, you mentioned our society and issues with environmental destruction and things like that. Wilding, as you've talked about it, is somewhat of an individual transformation, but do you think it has political effects? I think the individual is a a bit of a myth in some ways, uh, if you go deep into decolonial theory. But we certainly underestimate the power of individuals in social change, uh, generally, I find. It's important to remember that what you think and you feel and what you do are are very important. If they weren't important, we wouldn't have mass media, we wouldn't have governments, we wouldn't have various authority figures spending inordinate amounts of time and energy telling us what to do. But that's precisely what they do. And that means that what we do is important. And if we decide to do, or we are called to do, or we, we invite different ways of being in the world, and 
have a visceral need to change our lives, perhaps through wilding, then the world will radically change along with us. All right. Thanks very much, Yin. Pleasure, Andy. Thank you. We were talking to Yin Parodies about rewilding. He wrote an article on the topic uh, in the inaugural issue of Dissolution, from which I have gathered all the content for today's show. You can uh, find there's a bunch more articles on the website, dissolution.one, O-N-E, or um, grab yourself a paper copy by getting to that website or the social media of Dissolution Journal. To give it its full title, the dis bit is in brackets, right? And so it's like, I guess, dissolving society while coming up with solutions. Um, But as I said, I'm very excited to see uh, independent media coming out um, with people trying to express radical ideas and trying to do it well, trying to be thorough, you know, a bit deeper than social media memes or something like that, and trying to really reflect on actual... Uh, struggles and campaigns that are going on, which I know was part of the intention for dissolution, to get people writing who are also practitioners of trying to create change. And so, uh, very happy to have featured on the show. That's about all we have time for on the Paradigm Shift. See you next week.